Welcome to Under the Ring Pro Wrestling Conversations. My name is Phil Strum, so please, you've decided to spend some time with me, as well as my guest this week, Larry Dallas. For those of you unfamiliar with him, Larry has spent many years as a wrestler and a manager on the independent circuit for places like Dragon Gate and Evolve and some others. Currently, he's the English language color commentator for AAA Lucha Libre, having called several of their shows on fight. He did a similar role for Dragon Gate in Japan prior to the pandemic starting in 2020. Larry has a unique perspective on the business, having performed in a lot of roles in a lot of places. And it was also unique for me to learn a little bit more about the Lucha Libre side from him. The next big Triple Mania show on Fight, their big event, is October 15th in Mexico City. So here we go with my interview with Larry Dallas. Very happy to be joined today by one of the English language voices of AAA Lucha Libre on Fight, all-around pro wrestling utility player, Larry Dallas. Larry, welcome to Under the Ring Pro Wrestling Conversations. Thanks for being with me today. No problem, Phil. I've known you for a long time. It's an absolute, uh, for me, it's a privilege to be talking to you. There are very few people I like talking to in life when I'm not <laughs> working, but you're uh, you're one guy I'd make an exception for. I'm happy to be on that list. Uh, so you're someone fans might know in the past from Evolve or the Independent Circuit or Busted Open or Dragon mm -hmm. Gate. How exactly did you end up as the English voice of AAA Lucha Libre? And what's that experience been like? Uh, AAA, I ended up with AAA basically through, um, you know, I went over to, Co I did start working for Dragon Gate in Japan in 2019. I went over for Kobe World July of 19. It was me and uh, Rich Bokini of MLW that went over. And that got pretty good reviews. And those reviews was the first time that I had heard from AAA that, that Conan was interested. He liked your work and he, and he wants to talk to you. And then obviously throughout 2020, uh, the fall of 19 and 2020, I was supposed to be with Dragon Gate through, through the entire um, 2020 calendar year. I had a whole slate set up for them, um, different lengths of tours from like two weeks to six weeks, depending upon the show schedule and stuff like that, and the pandemic happened. So my goal for 2020 was I was going to do Dragon Gate, and then I would do the big AAA shows. And that kind of all went by the wayside. And then it literally took, you know, um, you know, through the pandemic, it took a lot of back and forth with, with Conan and myself and just, you know, kind of waiting my turn. There was a lot of hoops they had to jump through to get me in. Um, a couple of people that had to, you know, get their first crack at the job and, and not – I guess do it up to the level they wanted to and and that's how it kind of happened it was um it was like it was quick when it happened but it was very but it took a very long time from if you go from the initial starting point of where we of where we spoke uh but the, the the experience of working for them is fantastic especially being down there triple a is about as professional of an organization as i've ever worked for um i'd say you know probably goes dragon gate and triple a are right neck and neck as far as the way they handle talent the way they take care of you it's night and day compared to like an independent wrestler lifestyle What's it like to be at Triple Mania in Monterey or Tijuana? And what, what's, you know, what, what is kind of the vibe of Triple A? You've been a lot, in a lot of uh, different uh, experiences in wrestling. Yeah, the, the vibe is the vibe. They're very relaxed. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's just their, their mentality or I don't really speak a lot of a lot of Spanish, you know. So when I'm in that locker room with them, I, I'll hang out with like Hugo or, or Carlos Cabrera. Like I'll hang out with the commentators and kind of keep to myself or, you know, there's a couple of people I'm friendly with. But for the most part, I kind of kept with, with, with my ilk. Um, you got to watch everybody. Everyone's kind of very calm. For, for me, the, um, to be in a stadium that big with, with you know, talking 15,000, 16,000 fans is, you know, an experience I've never had. It's, it's an experience that, that very few people have in life, like, like that you're going to be able to go out there and do that. I mean, they had the Jets flying over. 
the stadium. They had the, you know, they had the Mexican National Guard out there doing the, um, you know, doing the national anthem with the big flag out in the outfield or the, or, or you know, the midfield of the soccer pitch because Tijuana was a soccer stadium. Um, you know, just that many people being in there, being in a sports booth, like where, like where you'd see like Joe Buck and Troy Aikman, um, <laughs> you, know, you know, being in like one of those actual booths, calling it from the top of a stadium, looking down. Uh, you know, the, the whole experience, you know, you're talking about someone that's like, I'm not a professionally trained broadcaster. So I don't know if I ever had those dreams of being in those booths and doing those things and having those experiences. So it's just very, very surreal and very humbling. And um, I try to appreciate the moments. For fans who haven't tried a Lucha Libre show, I, mm-hmm. I am not the biggest Lucha Libre fan in the world, but I, I kind of check in and out of it when I when I want to. Yeah. How would you sell them on a AAA pay-per-view and what makes AAA unique? It's it's an event. Uh, I'll be honest with you. It's an event. There, there's so much going on. Listen, I'm not going to tell you top to bottom. It's it's you know forbidden door. Um, but you know you, you got great matches. I mean, there's guys. You know, if you talk about you know Laredo Kid and Phoenix and Pentagon and, and Bandito and, and and you know Taurus. You know these guys are as good as anybody at pro wrestling. They go out there and do what they do. Um, you know, the, the, the women are featured. The women are very athletic and talented in their own ways. There, there's a, there's angles, there's, there's exoticos, there's, there, there's a little bit of everything there for you. I think as a fan, you go in there, you're going to have great matches. Like what was surprised me the most the past two shows was you had Viano, Viano Quarcho, Viano four, which some of you guys might remember from nitro, uh, like the WCW luchador era. Um, I believe he was when I got his back broken actually on the, um, on the trap door with the ultimate warrior, oh, his wow. neck broken. Um, he's like 60 something years old and they're doing a thing called like, um, Ruleta de Muerte. It was an eight person tournament with a loser's advance. And it's going to culminate now at the final, uh, triple mania, October 15th in Mexico city, uh, with Pentagon and Viano four being the, um, the unfortunate guys in the finals. But, you know, Viano four went out there in two shows and, and had great matches at 60 something years old. And it was completely different style matchups. It would be. I don't want to say it's like Memphis style matches that he had, but it, you know, it was brawling and blood and a lot of mask, you know, pulling and and you know, I wasn't expecting that coming in. I, I was like, okay, you know, you got some older guys wrestling on this. I'm sure it's gonna be great for nostalgia, great for the crowd. But as a as a commentator, maybe I won't be as juiced up or as into it. And um, you know, it, it was fantastic. So I, I think the beautiful part about AAA is that there's you know they have a little bit of everything going on for people, and. Um, you know, you get to uh, – there's different styles. There's different matchups. You're going to have some flying matchups. You're going to have some brawling. You're going to have some just pure gimmickry. And I, I think you get a little bit of taste of everything. And it's it's like buffet-style pro wrestling. And then I, I'm not sure if everybody in America is always aware. You know, I think they are somewhat, but you never really know of, like, specifically for that mask tournament, just how much those masks mean. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, uh, you know, Viana Force, somebody who's been around 30, 35 years, whatever it's been. And, and that mask has always been a big part of his and his family's uh, history. Yeah, he's I mean, you know, that's a legendary Mendoza family. You know, his father was a wrestler. Obviously, you know, there, there's five brothers that all had masks. There's a there was Viano three uh, junior or he hijo del Viano three um, junior. So, like, there's there's a lot of different, you know legacies with those masks i mean we just had um cheek tormenta lost her mask at um at T- tijuana they did a roulette de morte it was a cage match where um there were seven luchadoras in the matchup all of them had masks and the final two people we we're gonna face later on that night in a, in a mascara con mascara matchup 
And, um, you know, basically it, it, it went the way it went and Cheek Tormenta lost it. There was tears in her eyes. You know, she was very emotional. And um, these masks mean a lot to these people, especially when you get to guys like Viano Four, who's had a mask for a very long time. You know, it's a part of his legacy. You get the Pentagon, who, who has his whole career ahead of him. And, you know, what would losing his mask due to his marketability, due to his, due to his box office, due to the money he's going to be making in his career? So there's a lot of those different layers on um, on those things. The masks are very important. You know it as a fan if you read about it and you hear about it, but it's another thing to be down there and see it. Um, yeah. You know, it changes things. Like I was at the airport um, the day before. So that Friday night, there was a delay at the airport in Mexico City heading to Tijuana. So I'm at the airport bar and there's, you know, I was with Torus and I was with Viano. Four was there and I was with Carlos Cabrera. And I was about to say something to Viano. And then I was like, wait a minute. I was like, what? I was like, I was like, I can't call him Viano, right? Because he doesn't have his mask on. Like, what should I call him? And I, I, I stopped myself and asked because it's that important to protect identities down there that you would do that you do something like that. Where in America you wouldn't even think about it, right? Like if I saw Jigsaw out in a in a crowd, you know, Chikara wrestler who should be signed somewhere, by the way, and I'd be like, oh, Jigsaw, what's up, buddy? You know, and like I wouldn't even think about who I said it in front of or who I said it around. Right. But down there, you have to be cognizant of those things. And then, too, it's almost like a full character change in some cases when the mask comes off. I remember yeah. a few years ago when Dr. Wagner Jr. Uh, lost, he lost his. lost psycho. Yeah. Psycho right. Brown. And that just became, like he actually sort of ended up with an odd career resurgence out of the complete mm -hmm. change of Dr. Wagner Jr. off of what people knew. Yeah, so. absolutely. It, 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 it's, a, it's a funny dichotomy there, you know, how it works out. It could Conan it launched Conan's career when he lost his mask. You know, and he lost his mask very early. I think it was like. Might have been the first Triple Mania he lost it against Sin Caras in a, in a Mascara con, you know, uh, uh, Caballero match, I believe, the hair versus mask match. Um, you know, and it launched his career. And there's guys like, there's guys like, you know, Rey Mysterio who lost their mask, put it back on, wasn't that big of a deal. You see it all the time, but sometimes losing a mask changes your career badly, badly. Yep. How much did you know about Lucha Libre and how much uh, did you have to learn about Lucha Libre before taking the mic in Triple A? I always saw like I'm a guy that reads the Observer every week, right? So like I almost read it cover to cover. So like I'll read what's going on in NOAA, I'll read what's going on in CMLL, I'll read what's going on in AAA. You know, even if I don't work for these companies, just to kind of get an idea of who's around and whose names are out there and and who do I not know. Um, I don't watch as much as I used to when I was in my you know teens and twenties, where I just watch whatever I can get my hands on, trading tapes online. But you know, I, I know enough and. The, the benefit of working for Dragon Gate is Dragon Gate's very uh, like lucha risu, um, you know, which is what we'd call like a lucha libre puro, you know, Japanese like hybrid style, because that's the way those guys were classically trained. Um, obviously, they came from Torimon uh, Gym down in Mexico, which is Ultimo Dragons Gym. Um, Ultimo trained those guys to be lucha style and Japanese style, and that's kind of what the Dragon Gate identity was. So stylistically. Moving over to AAA was pretty easy for me because I understood the um, the language in that ring. But um, as far as knowing storylines and, and, and factions and all that stuff, that took a lot of work. And I, I you know, Lucha Blog on Twitter and um, Rob Viper on on Twitter. Yep, those are guys I leaned on when I first started. I was like, hey man, I was like, who's at what faction? Because it was so hard to keep track of, and it was so hard to figure out who was with who. Uh, early on, you know, you can do as much studying as you want to, but I mean, you have to have, you know, the masks in front of you, um, and, and you have to have when, you, when you're doing these matches first, Dinamitas, um, 
Dinamitas are a second generation group. Uh, I believe they're the sons of um, the, the sons or nephews of Sin Caras. If you look them up, um, uh, Nuevo Generacion uh, Dinamitas, they, they, they literally, literally have like the same mascot. Oh, wow. The only way to tell these guys apart is by what they have on their pants. Like, like one has a <laughs> lion, one has something. And like, that is literally the only way you can tell who, which one's which with these guys until you get to learn body types and stuff like that. Right. So when you first call their match, you're screwed because you have, you literally cannot keep track of it in a Lucha style where guys are going in and out, in and out. So that's why I'm happy Dombrowski has to do all that stuff. And I just going to be the funny color guy, but you know, learning that's hard with the masks. It, it is. And you know, We've had a lot of surprises where surprise guys come out during matches and stuff like that that we don't always know about. They don't tell us all the time. And, like, you know, like it's like you have to hear the music. It's like, whose music is that? Like, who's that with that person? And, like, you know, you got you to gotta be knowledgeable of a lot of different things because especially down there in AAA, man, stuff is happening so quick, so often. It's hard to keep track of. How fun is it to count the professor Mike Tanay as a colleague now? And what kind of stuff wrestling-wise were you able to learn from him? Today's um today's great. I uh the first time I ever heard from Mike um was after Kobe World 2019 where he was talking to Meltzer about it or whatever and and today was like I that kid that that was fantastic what he did. I emailed that I emailed him. I was just went back and forth. When I started doing when I got the Triple A gig, the first person I emailed was Mike today. I said, "Hey man, I said uh I said as far as I'm concerned, when I think Lucha Libre in America, Lucha Libre English, I think Mike today." Yep. So the first thing I went was like, what do I need to know? Like, what's your suggestions? Like, how can I do this? Like, literally, like before the Tijuana show, like a couple hours beforehand, I got an email from him saying, hey, good luck tonight. You know, I'm sure you'll be great. Just having that person like we don't talk every day. We don't talk every week. You know, I'll check in on him for big shows. and I'll be like, hey, man, you know, what do you think of this? Or how'd you like this show? How do you do that? Because I just want that feedback from someone that, that did it. And. I just try to, you know, give homage to him. I mean, obviously, him and Chris Cruz were the first ones to do English commentary for for a Lucha Libre show all the way back in 1993. Uh, and today, to me, and, and I, our generation is American Lucha Libre. He's the professor for that reason. And uh, just to be able to lean on him or ask him questions, I think, is an invaluable asset. I always enjoyed, obviously, you know, he, he and Chris Cruz did the Wind Worlds Collide pay-per-view yeah. back then for d- the co-promoted with WCW. But I always cracked up. There was one night on a Nitro where – they zoomed in on a fan in a Lucha Libre mask in the crowd, and Tanay and Zabisco were on commentary. And Tanay just turns to Zabisco and says, "Well, actually, that's the mask of the Mexican luchador Fishman." Yeah. And Zabisco had absolutely no idea what was going on. He was like, yeah. "How do you know that?" Yeah, it's it's, it's Tanay. That's the kind of stuff you're going to get from Tanay. You know, Roy Lucier on um on Twitter, he's a guy that posts a lot of clips of things, a lot of lucha stuff. He's a um, I think he has Mike Tanay's tape collection actually. Wow, I think t- I think Tanay sent him like a bunch of VHSs for or you know for for Lucier to like convert to media file or whatever, do whatever you want with. Um, so we constantly post things like so. There's things I see now every day. Like I, I, listen, you're you're in it, so you pay attention more. But like I didn't know Kamala was down there feuding with you know Norman Smiley. Like I didn't know I didn't know a lot of this stuff back in the '90s. So now now I'm watching this, these clips and these things. And I'm like I want to go back and watch all this older stuff now to see what what was going on and get to know more of the history of things. And, um, you know, you, you got guys and, and thankfully like as negative as social media is at times. And listen, I, 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 I hate social media too much. If I didn't have to be on it, you know, for promoting purposes, I would just have a burner account and like follow the Mets and the Knicks, you know, <laughs> um, you know, just follow the sports teams and see what I wanted to see with, with the teams I follow. But, um, 
you know, there's a lot of positive out there you can, there's, because there's people that know more than you. Yep. Like, like, yes, I'm the commentator, but there's people that know more than me. Those are people I can use as assets and, and, and ascertain stuff from and, and pull information from. And, you know, if you use it the right way and get in touch with the right people, people yep. want to help you. You know, you know that about, you know, that as being a fan of the business, yep. you want people to be successful in this business. You want people that you like, you want to help them out any way you can. So, you know, I think sometimes having that relationship with certain people or leaning on those assets is a good thing. Yeah, the, pro- the problem with Twitter, I often say to people, is that it's people's published gut reactions to things. Oh, yeah. And and then it's just not – and most social media is not conducive for dialogue, which is no. where most of it gets lost. People are I mean, people are a lot more alike sometimes than people realize. I mean, oh, yeah, dude, absolutely. Like, absolutely. Like, right? Like, like I bartend when I'm not when I'm not doing commentary. So I deal with people all day. You know what I mean? I deal with people from every spectrum of life, blue collar, white collar, divorced, married, young, old. You know, I deal with it all. You know, dude, most of my all I do in life is watch. I watch the Mets. I, I'll watch, you know, I watch the Nixon. I got Nixon season tickets. I'll watch the Mets. That's what I do. It's like my life is. So, like, I do that. I work and I do the wrestling stuff. And I'm with my girlfriend or I'm watching, I go to the movies once a week. Like, I don't have much thoughts on anything. You know, like realistically, like there's nothing that affects my life, honestly. Like there's nothing going on in the world that affects my life, you know, for whatever reason. Maybe it's my age or whatever. I, I just I, I go to the movies. I have my dream job. I bartend. I'm happy. You know, all I want to do is really talk about sports, whatever movie I watched and crack a couple of jokes. Like that's that's my happy level in life. And, you know, yep. you got to you got to find that sometimes that space where you can do that, because otherwise you're going to get I get myself in trouble all the time because yep. it's, it's a place where you can get in trouble. How did how did you end up in wrestling announcing? I think when I first crossed paths with you, you were doing some work with House of Hardcore, managing Vic Delicious. Yep. What what made you go in the direction of wrestling announcing? Uh, conversation with William Regal. I had a I got booked as an extra in 2013, October of 13, down in um Orlando and Tampa, which is a story in and of itself. How I ended up down there for that, but um, I actually ended up going down there. You know, doing the extra work. So they had me do like the match that I was woefully unprepared for. I did with poor Sam Adonis, uh, Corey Graves' brother. And I remember John Cena sitting at the commentary table, Regal being there in a, you know, around ringside. Um, this would be the night of the SmackDown taping. So it was the Tuesday. So like Monday, you kind of sat around all day and did nothing. And then Tuesday was that. Then you go do the promos. And um, you do the promos in front of Regal and Brawler. And this was the old way that you got. Because I don't think 2013 there was even like NXT, NXT yet. I think it might have still been FCW. Yeah, or they were having the reality or show was, NXT. Yeah. yeah, they were they, yes, they were they were going in whatever direction they were going in back in 2013. Um God, I'm old. Um I've been through I've been through like Deep South OVW, like you know, <laughs> FCW, NXT, NXT 2.0. Um, so yeah, so anyway, so I did my promo and um I remember Brawler just like shit all over me. And I was yep. like, well, that sucks, you know. And Regal looks at me and he goes, he goes to me, he goes, he goes, no, he goes, he goes, you thought talking was gonna be your key here uh, this weekend, right? I was like, I was like, yeah, kind of. He goes, there's something very genuine and very real when you talk. I don't know what it is. I don't know, I don't know what, I don't know why, but when you speak, I believe you. He goes, so maybe you should focus on that and figure out where that can take you. I can't help you get there. It's not my specialty, but maybe that's what you should focus on. And I remember years later, um, because the years run into each other, Regal would start coming to Evolve shows. And I was the one that would pick that, had to pick him up. And I was kind of his chauffeur for the weekend. And he remembered me from that, from that, 
to that loop. And I, I, I reminded him of that story. And every time I talked to Regal, you know, at this point I was on busted open and doing all that stuff. So, um, but, the, but the first seed that was planted, that that's the path I should go down would, would have been William Regal. Interesting. If you had to explain to someone, you know, what the wrestling persona of Larry Dallas was, you know, <laughs> how, how would you do that? And how close to yourself is that? Uh, it was me turned up to like 25. Um, I don't think it works today, uh, today's culture. I wouldn't do it the same way I did it back then. Um, you got to understand something. I was kind of trying to figure out how to, how to get myself known. And, and my job was to be the hated guy on this like super indie, you know, that was, um, you know, that was all work rate and wrestling. And I was just kind of out there to be like the outlier, the different thing there and, and be the character. And, and, and I wanted, they, they wanted me hated and I wanted to be hated. And I kind of carried myself like that, you know, at shows, like the moment I walked through the building, the moment I saw fans, I, I, I tried to live it up and play it up. And, you know, it was a sleazy guy, you know, was, you know, playboy type guy, you know, the bar, it's going to buy bottles, you know, like Jersey Shore meets like Staten Island, um, like rich guy, you know, and uh, it would never work today uh, because you can't play those kind of characters today. T today's today's society and today's um, fan base wants more out of people. They want more genuineness out of, out of who you are as a person. So it's weird because I look back on it and I'm like, oh man, like, I'm like, people did, people don't like me just from those days, those years. Cause they think I'm like a douche from those years. And like, no, I'm really not, but you know, that's what the character was. And that's people believed it. Maybe that made me good at what I did at, at portraying something or, or doing something, but you, you can't do it today. And it's so funny how much the world can change in 10, in five, 10, 12 years. Yep. Because, I mean, when I tell you, you couldn't, I mean, you could not do that today. Like, you cannot be how I was. You cannot do that kind of act. You cannot do a lot of those things. It would not get over. If you look at what gets over on the independents now, like organically, and I don't have to like their styles of yeah. what gets over, but like, you have to study what gets over, like the Effies get over and and, and the, you know, the, the, the uh, Dark Sheets get over and Joey Janelli gets over on the Indies. I don't have to personally be a fan of like their style, what they do, right? Yeah. But you got to respect the fact that they know how to get over in today's marketplace. And I think if you're a younger guy studying that, like how to get over today in the Indies, you got to be like those guys and, and get a character over that's authentically you, a little turned up. Or yeah. you got to be like the super, super like Wheeler Yudas and Daniel Garcia's, you know, super great wrestler guy to, to, to be over in this marketplace nowadays. I don't think characters like me worked uh, today, you know, today compared to I don't think it even worked 10 years ago, to be honest with you. But it was just something that they did. Yeah, it's interesting you said that about the Effies and the Joy Janellas and stuff like that. Because even if you don't like the character or you don't like the style or something like yeah. that, you have to understand that, like, okay, if it worked and if it sold tickets, then it doesn't really matter if you liked it or not because someone did. Well, like I asked Sabu once, like, why the table? And Sabu was like, I would have used a, I would have used a, you know, I would use the fire extinguisher if it was ringside. I forget what, what, he, what he actually used as the example of that, but like the table was there. So he used the table. You see now there's like doors, you know, there's all these different things that, that have no purpose being there. Yeah. Which was why like, I don't like it. But, you know, if it works, it works. But like Sab, like I've never, I would have never thought in a million years that when I talked to Sabu the first time I met him, that he would have this great psychological mind for wrestling. Yep. And he did because everything he did was able to make sense to him when he, when he explained it to you. Yep. I've heard that before. Too. I don't think there's a lot of I don't think there's a lot of stuff happens nowadays that you can explain to me logically 
why it's taking place. And, I, and that's where like I lose my interest. But again, if, it's, if it gets you over, God bless you. Go make yeah, your money. Works. Yeah. So you had one of the more interesting early pandemic stories I knew of. You were in <laughs> Japan when COVID-19 hit yes. and couldn't and couldn't leave Correct. right away. And Correct. you had shows coming up, and they all slowly got canceled. And yeah. then you, then you came back to the U.S. And you know, tell me about that time and just kind of where things were going because you were flying high with, I with was Dragon Gate at that high, point. Man. And and I was going over every month at that point: November, December, January. Uh, and then I was going. I got home beginning of Fe- like mid February, early 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 February, and then I was going back out. I flew back out February twenty seventh or twenty eighth. So I was watching it get worse month by month over there. You know, it went from temperature checks to having to fill out extra paperwork to doing different things to get in and out of there. But America really wasn't paying attention. And I remember, I'll never forget, I'm sitting on my, I'm laying on a couch and I'm flying out like the next morning. And I just read that New Japan canceled a show or two. And I was like, I was like, this ain't good. So we go do the show the next day. Um, it would have been the 29th of february was a leap year we did the show 29th osaka joe we were doing two shows there all the fans had their masks on i got to dinner with kai and all the other foreigners and we had a great great dinner i'm gonna stay i'm like i'm supposed to be here for six weeks i'm like all right man i'm freaking i'm bunked in this is great like i can do the next six weeks standing on my head we're gonna be traveling all over we go to tokyo on tuesday rock and roll next day I go to the show pre-show meeting it's all in japanese Standing there, and I can just tell the vibe of this meeting is bad. Yeah. I just can tell by like the tone of Shacho. Shacho's what you call the president over there. Shacho's voice. I could tell by the, te- by the tone and tenor of the wrestlers there, and I'm like, this is not good. And they told me they're like, like, oh, that is on like you no know, next two weeks canceled. And I was like, okay, like that's you know, all right, you know. So I'll stay at the dojo for the next two weeks, like. And then we'll get right back on the road. Like, no big deal. And then what it became was every week they'd cancel another week of shows. Right. And, you know, Martin Kirby from England was there. Michael Sue from Hong Kong. Ho Ho Loon from Hong Kong. And it was Diamante, who's a who's um not the Diamante right. that people know. It's a, it's a wrestler from Mexico. And this guy, Jimmy, was there. So my room in the dojo was two Mexicans, the British guy, and the two, and the two Hong Kong guys. So we're on bunk beds. You know, it's comfortable. You get used to it. It's not horrible. Um, so Michael broke his ankle like that, like that show. So he flew home to Hong Kong like immediately. Uh, then Martin Kirby was smart enough to go home. He's like, ah, you know, this ain't looking good. Things happen at home. I'm going home. My dumbass is like, well, I made a six week commitment. This is my job. Like, you know, they haven't asked me if I want to go home. I'm not going to push the issue. I'm just going to stick it out. And I was like, literally, I'm 13 hours ahead of America. And I was waking up every day reading the news over here. And it was yeah. getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And I ended up doing like, I think we did two empty arena shows in um, in that time frame. And it, it was horrible. It was like, we just did all those all that work. Um, I went over there and I had no certainty what was going on. I mean, they yeah. were very gracious. They paid me the entire tour. Um, every show I was supposed to work, I got paid for uh, they took us out to dinner once a week. There was dinner at the dojo. Like, I didn't really want for anything. It was just, you know, watching the world go to crap. And I, I didn't know if I was going to come home or not. Like, I didn't know if I was going to stay or if I should go home. And I thought in my head that, like, going home, I'd be home for, like, a month. Right. You know? And then I'd be back to work. 
And like ended up like coming home. I had to get a job. Like I was, I did. I went from doing like you know traveling the world to working Home Depot, you know, fifteen dollars an hour, like sitting at the door when they had the lines for people to get in. You got to do what you got to do because you got to understand. I couldn't bartend either, right? Because right, the bars were that wasn't open. So exactly. I came home. Like everything I do was gone. My my yeah. plan A and B were gone, and like wow. the Thanos snap. So it was it was a rough time mentally. Mentally, that was the worst I've ever felt in my life because it felt like there was no end in sight. It felt like no one gave a shit. Um, you know, the the the, inf- the people fighting every day about everything. You know, people just arguing about things and, and, and you know the mismanagement of this country and this government as a, as a whole about that thing, whatever side you're on. And like here you are as an individual, selfishly, like everything I loved was gone. Like, like there was nothing. Like I had nothing I wanted. There was nothing I needed. Like there was nothing I, I I wanted to do. Everything was gone. I went from the highest to highest to like literally like rock bottom. Like next day, so that was rough. But you know, thankfully I, I, I persevered through it. But that was that was the roughest period of my life. How long total were you in uh, Japan for? For that for that for that period, yeah. uh, six weeks. Wow. That's yeah. uh, I remember just following you on social media yeah. at that time and being like, I, I don't know <laughs> what's gonna because nobody had any idea what was gonna happen with anything no. at all. The uh, pretty much when I when I flew home, kind of still there, don't. But there was like there was like seven people. There was like seven people on my flight. It was not wow. a lot of people on the flight. And uh, I remember going through JFK, um, and the security. I mean, again, I just landed from Asia. This is April. This is like April sixth or ninth. This is like height of the pandemic. Um, and uh, I walked through security, and the guys like. Do you feel all right? Yeah. He's like, all right, go through. And I remember Lincoln. I was like, I was like, dude, I was like, that is not good. That is probably not the protocol that person yeah. is supposed to be following. I'm like, that is not like I, it was so bad that like I left my bag in Japan. My bag still, I still have a bag of luggage there. Wow. Because I didn't want, I didn't want to wait at the airport because I didn't want to be around people. So I just took my carry on so I can get in and out of the airport as quickly as possible because that that's yeah. how paranoid at the time you were about you know the pandemic, and you know you. If you ever drove in New York, man, you know the Van Wick. I mean, the Van Wick can have traffic at three o'clock in the morning. Yep. There was no car in the road. Wow. And I was like, I was like, what? I was like, I thought I came home to the Walking Dead. I'm like, what yeah. did I come home to? I had to quarantine for two weeks, right? right? And then it was like, all right, well, I got to figure out what to do for work. And like, obviously, like again, like like I bartended, I bounced, I worked, you know, I worked bar jobs, and I, and I did wrestling. I had nothing. I had nothing to. I, nothing. No one was hiring. You yeah. know, I picked the worst time in the world to get stuck in another country. But yeah. survived. It's a fun story. Yeah, it's crazy. All right, so we're going to move on to something we call the three count now. It's going to be uh, three quick questions and your uh, responses. Okay. So if you could insert Larry Dallas's voice into any moment in wrestling history, what would it be? I would love to do um, Shawn Michaels, Razor Ramon ladder matches. I was there live for that. So oh, wow. I would love to just call a classic. Like I, I was nine years old. That was my first ever WrestleMania I went to. Uh, who is the funniest person you have personally encountered in wrestling and why? Bobby Fish. Really? Bobby Fish is hysterical. Like, people don't realize how funny Bobby Fish is. Like, Bobby Fish, when we were on the road with Bobby Fish, I thought Bob Fish was one of the funniest guys in the world. Um, he always made me laugh. Um, I'm sure Vic and, Vic and Hale would say the same thing because, they, they, you know, Bob trained with DeVito, I think. You know, right. so it's that Northern New York connection. Bobby Fish is really funny. Like, really, really a funny guy. Interesting. And uh, so who are your all-time, in your opinion, the three best play-by-play announcers and the three best color commentators in uh, wrestling history? Play-by-play, you'd have to go Jim Ross. Um, you know, he's, he's he's probably number one. Um, I would put Tanae up there in the top three. And, and I think, honestly, right now, um, 
Gordon Soley's like the godfather of all of it. But Kevin Kelly's called a lot of classic matches now too. So 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 for me, um, God, but Tony Schiavone got good this year. Got got really good coming back to AEW too. <laughs> I, I would go. I would go, and this is a stretch. I would go Jim Ross because Jim Ross is the voice of my like my teenage years and everything like that. And when Jim Ross was good, there was no one better than Jim Ross. Um, then I would I would go I would go to Nay because he introduced like the international world to me. And uh, I think it was very important to TNA's growth and yep. interest there. And then for number three, right now, I, I think Kevin Kelly has a really good shot. Lenny Leonard's like up there, but he just hasn't had the exposure. And, yep. you know, but I'm not going to put my friend over for no reason. I, I would, <laughs> Kevin Kelly for my generation might be up there now, top three. And then color guys, I mean, Bobby Heenan, unquestionably number one with a bullet. I mean, there's no one better than Bobby Heenan to me as a color guy. He, he was. He is the apex of the position, um, the apex of that role. Uh, I think that um, Jesse Ventura growing up. See, I'm going to go with voice I, I grew up watching. Yep. You know, Jesse was so good. If you if you go back at it, uh, at justifying what the heels did, right? I challenge anybody go watch any Hulk Hogan match from the '80s with Jesse on commentary. Like, go Hogan Savage at WrestleMania 5. That's a pretty good match. Jesse always points out, like, when Hogan's cheating or, or like, what Hogan's doing. And it points out the hypocrisy of it. And I think that's such a brilliant move from a color guy to point out why something's happening the way it does and and, and um, to be able to justify a heel's actions, especially if you're playing that heel commentator role. So I think Bobby and Jesse, like, kind of innovated that role, created those roles. I think, I think they're up. I think they've got to be top two. God, third third best color guy. Um, Corey Graves was really good when he wanted to be. I, you know, Corey Graves is good now, but the, the, the problem with WWE is that like it's hard to judge a WWE commentator because they're so produced. Yep. That you know you're blaming the talent for someone else's words in their ears and, and getting directed five six different ways. So I, I I feel like they get an unfair slant now because I I, I do feel like they're so produced and so yeah. and get so word saladed of what they have to say. Um, so I would go like, you know, Steve Carino is a, is, is really good on, on color. You know, you go back to the ring of honor days. He was always entertaining. Very good. Well, uh, Larry, thank you so much for uh, joining us today on under the ring. Uh, a lot of fun talking to you as always. Absolutely. And, uh, brother. I'd, I'd love to do this again in the future. Anytime you want to, man, let me know. Thanks again, everyone, for joining me this week on Under the Ring Pro Wrestling Conversations. I'd like to thank Larry Dallas for joining me this week and want to wish him the best in his commentary career. Join us next week where we'll have another unique guest, Lori Gassi from No Gimmick Gear. Lori's someone I've known for a while, completely unrelated to pro wrestling, who happens to have a burgeoning business designing wrestling attire for people like Max Caster, Chris Statlander, Nikita Lyons, and several others. I was really happy to speak with Lori about what she does, and I think you'll find her process interesting, too. That's it for now. Have a great week, everyone.